If you love something, set it free. If it returns to you, it's yours. If it doesn't, it never was. The phrase is a well-known and often quoted, but the origin is unknown. Three possible contenders show up during a search of who initially said it, but it doesn't matter. The profundity of the saying is useful to start many conversations or soothe a broken heart. Welcome to the Living Brightly podcast with Elaine Cross. I'm Elaine Cross. Jesus told us to let your light so shine that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Together, we've looked at B for believer, R for rest, I for identity, and G for gifts. These four representing our foundational personal relationship with God. The foundation of your building is part of a bright city on a hill. Then we began looking at the walls of our building, representing your horizontal relationship with those around you. Starting with H for honor, honoring others as children of God, touched by his very hand and important to him. T for tribe, recognizing we need a circle of people who believe and support us in living brightly, as well as the ripples that radiate from that throughout the world. Now we come to L. As we continue exploring what it means to live brightly, having arrived at the letter L proposes a quandary. The obvious idea of L being representative of love, right? It satisfies the soul with respect to God. God so loved the world, he'd sent his son, that whosoever believes in him would have eternal life. Additionally, Jesus's command, love God and love others. Alas, you've read the title and know already the concept is not love, but liberty. And I know you're asking, why is Elaine talking about love? I do this because liberty and love are intrinsically linked. Hence, if you love something, set it free, liberate it, allow it liberty. Conversely, do not cage it or hold it hostage. Don't restrict it. Therefore, the key word in the aforementioned phrase is not love, but free, liberty. However, to fully embrace liberty as a construct of living brightly, we must examine this plausible and somewhat expected alternative, love. I was reticent to use love because it has so many different meanings to everyone. If I asked 100 people what love is, I would probably get close to 100 different answers that could easily be separated into a few buckets. Of course, romantic love, but there's also parental love and even relational love, affection for one another. I would put all of those into one bucket. I love my spouse. My children hold a very special place in my heart. And, you know, I love you, man. <laughs> anyway, then you could think of a quoting from scripture. And if you look at scripture, it's amazing that love is clearly defined, especially in Corinthians 13, 4 through 8. Love is patient, kind, does not envy, does not boast, is not proud, is not rude, not self-seeking, not easily angered, keeps no record of wrong does not delight in evil, rejoices with truth, 
always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres, and never fails. Well, that is quite a standard, and I don't know that any of us know love like that, apart from the love we believe God offers us. But think about it. Do you think about these things when you say you love turkey at Thanksgiving? Love is one of those words we use to describe so many different things at so many different levels. You may have even balked at my lumping your love for your wife and the love for your children and your friends into the same bucket. Why? Because that love is so different, right? There's there's certainly a difference between the love I have for my husband and the love I have for, well, you. <laughs> Did you know there's four different words translated love in the New Testament alone? There are at least three in the Old Testament that I found, and there's probably more than that. In the New Testament, there's Philadelphia, or brotherly love, love of brethren, which is a noun. Also, we see agape, which is affectionate love, also a noun. Additionally, there are two words that are almost like the sisters, if you will, of those words, but they're both verbs. So Philadelphia has phileo, which is a love which is approving or affectionate. And then there's agapo, which is love of persons or things. So love, okay, what kind of love do you love with your turkey? My husband loves turkey. It's one of his favorite meals. Maybe that's a better way of putting it. He really enjoys a turkey dinner. But he'll tell you, I love turkey. Because he really loves turkey, the last thing he would do is eat it. He so enjoys a turkey dinner. He would like me to cook it at least once a month. That's somebody who really likes turkey. Therefore, because of this confusion or this clarity over what love is and what love means, that is to say, when we talk about love, do I have to define it and describe it and deconstruct it so that we all make sure we're on the same page? A better way of examining and quantifying what it means to live brightly via the letter L is liberty. Yes, you can have liberty without having love, but you can't really have love without freedoms, without liberty. If you love something, set it free. If it returns to you, it's yours. If it doesn't, it never was. Thanks for joining me. What begins with L? Liberty. Liberty is a different idea that puts your mind in a totally different place than love. Love is emotionally driven. And we who live brightly know we should not be guided by our emotions. Moreover, if I talk about liberty, or you talk about liberty, we understand each other without having to clarify. Because this is about other people and our horizontal relationships with others, clarity is important. We're born with a drive to be free, to be in charge of our own life. Just go watch a toddler somewhere. Watch him at church or a party and see how a two-year-old has this drive that compels them to be 
independent. A two-year-old desperately, passionately, sometimes loudly expresses its will to make its own life choices. Of course, loving parents know they can't allow a two-year-old to make all the decisions about their health and well-being. It's unhealthy to just eat sweets and never eat any meat or vegetables. Albeit they can walk and run, but it's best done in the yard and not in the street. Parents create a safe place for their children to learn how to be independent and free within the construct of their society. Whatever that society is, they find themselves. For most of us, that first society is just the family home. In my house, my children had chores to complete as part of the family. One day, my son decided that his chores were too oppressive compared to his much younger siblings and refused to complete them. In response, I informed him that his participation in the family household was not negotiable. Well, he gathered his belongings and moved out to the playhouse. I saw him gathering his stuff together and I was like, what are you up to? I'm moving out on my own. His eight-year-old self responded just adamant. He was going to do this by himself. Okay. (laughs) A few hours later, he tried to open the door and found it locked. Well, guess what? I had locked it because I knew there was an opportunity here that I didn't want to waste. So he knocked and I opened the door. Hello, I'm hungry. What's for dinner? He asked. (laughs) Oh, we had a lovely dinner, but you no longer live here. (laughs) But I need to eat. Well, do you have any money for your meal? But I live here. You have to feed me. I'm your child. No, you no longer live here. I do not have to feed people who don't live here. Well, I want to move back home. Okay, well, if you choose to live here, then you must participate, including the household chores. Are you ready to complete your chores? Yes. (laughs) Okay, then bring your belongings back inside, put them away, complete the chores I gave you to do, after which you can have some dinner. (laughs) As a parent, it was easy to see what he needed. As a child driven for independence, driven to have the freedom to make his own decisions, it was very infuriating at some level. (sighs) Guiding children as they grow takes great effort and vision. My vision for my children is for them to be productive members of society. Possessing liberty must be balanced by staying connected to your tribe and honoring the touch of God in others. Yes, as adults, many people lead fulfilling, productive lives alone, but they often don't live in isolation apart from anyone else. They live in a community and they have friends and coworkers and people that they share their life with. Liberty must be balanced with the whole of life. Therefore, our freedoms are impacted by living with others. Jesus talk about, talked about slavery, and when we think about not having the freedom to make choices, that's where our mind first goes. People who are physically oppressed by cruel taskmasters. At the time Jesus walked the earth, the Jews were wholly oppressed by the Roman Empire. 
Now, we do not have full understanding of the details of what that looked like, but we do know there were many cruelties inflicted on many of the Jewish people at the time and in Jewish history. Joseph went to Egypt because he was sold as a slave by his brothers. He suffered as a slave both by the Egyptians and by the other slaves or prisoners as well. One prisoner assured Joseph he would petition for his release if his interpretation of his dream was accurate, which it was. Unfortunately, the man forgot all about him until Pharaoh had several dreams and all his wise men and soothsayers couldn't interpret them. God brought Joseph back to the cupbearer's mind and suggested that Pharaoh see the slave Joseph, who just happened to be sitting in his prison. God then elevated Joseph through Pharaoh's ranks to be second in command, resulting in salvation from drought as well as great wealth. Through this, Joseph's family was reunited, and they lived an abundant life in Egypt for many, many years. It's a story of love, but it's also a story of liberty. Joseph was liberated from the confines of his family and life as a shepherd by being sold into slavery. Yeah, we don't really want to hear that, do we? In Egypt, Joseph learned how the Egyptians ran their society. He was not going to learn about being a leader to that level in a secular kingdom as the 11th son of a very rich and powerful, albeit godly man. God liberated Joseph from his family so he could learn many things while being a slave. Subsequently, God used that to bless Joseph's whole family. I'm not saying you need to run out and try to become enslaved. No, but being physically enslaved is not the end all. Nevertheless, over many years, the Egyptians forgot Joseph and all he had done. The Israelites, an odd group of people, had grown to a great number. God had blessed them. They were multiplying. They were growing. They had become a nation. And fear struck the Egyptians so much so that they made Jews into slaves to control them. Because it kind of became us or them. Where one had been brought as a slave, now all of them had become slaves. The Egyptians were cruel, brutal, and rough taskmasters. The Israelites were oppressed, physically oppressed. But God did not abandon them there either. If you celebrate Easter or Passover, and I hope you do, the whole event is a memorial to how God used Moses to liberate the Israelites from the oppressive control of Egypt. Furthermore, almost 1,500 years later, now the Jews are in the promised land and they're once again under oppression by the Roman Empire, The final Passover Jesus and his disciples celebrated is about God through Jesus liberating whosoever will from the bondage of sin. The Sermon on the Mount in Matthews chapter 5 through 7, Jesus is preaching liberation, not just the physical bonds, but the spiritual bonds. We are called to love our neighbors and love God. But Jesus clarified that we are also called to love those who hurt us, love our enemy, to be so different so as to stand out as a light against the dark evil of this world. Jesus is proposing a paradigm shift 
from viewing all things from our physical situation to a spiritual perspective. I have a friend who came up to me one day after church and excitedly told me that she had a dream about me. In the dream, I was rich. I mean, really, really rich, she said. I wondered, and thinking this in my mind, is this even for me or for you? Because usually dreams are for the dreamer, not someone else, even if that person is in the dream. I'm not going to lie. I kind of like the sound of it, but I didn't know what to do with that information. As we walked away, my husband came up and nudged me. He said, you said you're rich all the time. Immediately, my perspective shifted. I am rich, not in the physical sense, not even close, but abundantly in the spiritual sense. Though I would enjoy being a conduit of God's abundance to those around me, I would not choose to be spiritually poor just to get physically rich. I've never been what the world would consider rich, but there have been many times in my life when I didn't have sufficient income to know where I would get food to eat. And times when I really depended on the government welfare system. Though I'm not rich according to the world, I'm abundantly spiritually rich. Yes, I want to earn a sufficient wage. I want to find satisfaction in what I do to earn my wage. This satisfaction comes from our concept of honor. I have the liberty to serve others as I would God himself. Because my perspective is focused on the spiritual not on the physical. Let's go back to those two-year-olds, shall we? As adults, we hide our shortcomings and selfishness. Children haven't quite learned the nuances of successfully covering that up. They'll lie to your face, steal what they want, blame others, hide things, deceive you, and attempt to circumvent any external control over their life, often to their own peril. Good parents do not let two-year-olds run the household. As children learn to live within the rules of society, aka their family, there's a little more peace in their life. And the parents kind of, okay, got through that. But (laughs) between the ages of, let's say, four and 12, children become pretty compliant. Though the drive for liberty still runs deep, there's a healthy fear or something that keeps them within bounds. But somewhere around the age of 12, this drive to be the authority of their own life clashes with the parents and teachers responsible for keeping them safe. As a side note, I believe parents can better serve their children by allowing them as much liberty as they can stomach so children can learn through natural consequences, the basic fundamentals of life, right? Yes, you can learn gravity from a step stool that's six inches high, or you can learn gravity trying to jump off of a rooftop into a pool. It's your choice. I prefer the six-inch stool when a child is three over the 16-year-old jumping off of a roof. I digress. Ultimately, we are all slaves to sin, no matter our age. The cravings of our body, the need for selfish independence, and the mistrust and competition we feel against each other The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, as John put it, puts us in this physical and spiritual bondage to sin. Sin drives us to want things that satisfy our body and its five senses, 
The lust of the flesh is everything from a sweet tooth to sexual addiction. Whatever your flesh craves, from food to alcohol to porn, the lust of the eyes is what you want that's not yours or someone else has. The desire to get a new riding lower because the guy down the street got one. The promotion at work. That flaming dessert that just walked by your table at the restaurant. Seeing what someone else has and wanting it too, or wanting something just a little bit better. Then there's the pride of life is that recognition from others. We want accolades. We want a title. We want promotions. We want to feel elevated, cheered, and recognized. Look at me. Look at what I have accomplished. Now, none of these things are evil and bad in and of themselves. Conversely, we can achieve all these things and not sin. It's sin when we compare ourselves with others out of a fear of being left behind or jealousy to prove your value. If you experience an emotional reaction, a comparison of your position on the hierarchy of life, you might want to ask yourself, did I want this before he got it? Am I feeling challenged to compete? Is my identity diminished or lessened because she got the promotion and not me? Are you comparing your good deeds, your value, your righteousness to the perceived evils or less appealing deeds of this other person? Is your perspective that they aren't as good or they don't work as hard or they don't do as much as you do? Comparison, competition, and drive to satisfy the body is sin. Jesus came to liberate us from sin and its ultimate consequence, death. In the movie The Matrix, the leader of the resistance is Morpheus, and he identifies Neo as a potential new member. So he meets with him and kind of explains what The Matrix is. The matrix is the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth, Morpheus tells him. What truth? Neo replies. That you are a slave, Leo. Like everyone else, you were born into bondage, born into a prison that you cannot smell or taste or touch, a prison of your mind. Unfortunately, no one can be told what the matrix is. You have to see it for yourself. Morpheus then offers the what is now iconic blue pill or red pill to Neo. The blue pill will return you to the world you've always been in and you can believe whatever you want to believe. It has been hailed as this choice between reality and disreality and whatever, but when you hear this, it's the red pill offers the opportunity quote, to stay in Neverland and see how far the rabbit hole goes. Neo accepts. In this first movie, there's another character, Cypher, who is becoming increasingly disillusioned with the mission. But the writers of The Matrix expose Cypher through these three categories of sin that we just talked about. In a short clip, which you can view on YouTube, by searching matrix eating steak and protein, you're going to see it's, it's almost hilarious in hits exposing 
the drives that we have um, as humans in this flesh. But the clip shows Cypher eating a steak and he says, he's holding up a piece with a fork and he says, I know this steak doesn't exist. I know that when I put it in my mouth, the matrix is telling my brain that it's juicy and delicious. After nine years, you know what I realize? Ignorance is bliss. Then we have a deal, Mr. Smith responds. I don't want to remember nothing. Nothing, you understand? Then he swirls a glass of wine under his nose and he continues, I want to be rich and I want to be somebody important, like an actor. (laughs) It's all right there. The lust of the flesh is the stake and the wine. The lust of the eyes is just the ignorance of the war and, and all the other truths that he knows are happening. And of course, the pride of life. I want to be somebody important, like an actor. Now, if you watch the clip on YouTube, you'll see that the clip goes on to show the members of the resistance eating this protein goop, and they're not relieved of this desires and temptations because Mouse reviews the same exact temptations. He, he expresses his pride in his coding skills. Oh, I wrote that code. It's pretty good. And then the dreams and the desires for other foods, comparing the slop they're eating, this protein, amino, whatever, uh, to foods that they ate and whether, whether what they tasted as chicken or cream of wheat was really it, how the machine knew what it tasted like, how it could program our brain, whatever. And then, of course, the lust of the flesh, the woman in the red dress, I can hook you up with her, you know, she doesn't talk much. These are universal characterizations of the bondage of sin that we experience as humans, as people living here on earth. Being liberated from the bonds of sin doesn't mean you automatically know how to live in freedom, though. You know, my son continues to have a fiercely independent streak in him because from his perspective, others may not be as dependable or give their time or their talent as much as he does. In recent years, I've continued to remind him that it's God's plan for us to live interdependent, depending on each other's skills and talents. Yes, many chores are simple enough to handle by yourself. However, when your time and talent is better served somewhere else, you bless others by allowing them to complete those tasks. So let's do a thought experiment. Say you own a lawnmower and you have a youth from your neighborhood and ask if he can mow your lawn. Well, now you choose. You can either deny the request and continue mowing your grass as you always had and you both part ways. You could allow the youth to mow your lawn and pay for his services. Or you could strike up a conversation gathering more information. Through this little discussion, you find out that he wants to work. He doesn't have any skills. He doesn't have any tools. He doesn't own a lawnmower. Now, you can offer to teach him how to operate your lawnmower and work out a business arrangement. The benefits include that an enterprising youth is learning valuable work skills and work ethic, and you both build new connections. The ripples of light you radiate go further because you're allowing this other person to participate in your need to have your lawn mowed. 
he can then take the lawnmower and go to your neighbor and other people on the street and get other jobs so that he can earn money and he can become an entrepreneur and learn all those things about natural consequences. How do you let your light shine? You are liberated from the desires of sin, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, which pushes you into competition and judgment of others. If we decide to let our light shine and be different from those around us, we get to authentically, abundantly, outrageously celebrate when someone else gets something, even if it's something you've wanted for a long time. Conversely, you get to stop asking and thinking, where's my rage? What about me? Where's my break? Why don't I have fill in the blank? Slavery to sin is sneaky. All you have to do is drive down the road and see someone has a nicer house than you, a more athletic husband or a prettier wife. You'll see someone with a nicer car and well-behaved children. But it's your mind with its ideas and thoughts and drives that push us to compete and compare with our neighbors. The muscle memory of thought tries to drag us back into slavery to sin by judging others. Jesus was judged. He hung on the cross and stood judgment for you and for me. Moreover, he was found to meet those standards and pay the price so that we can be free from sin and death. Freely it was given you, freely give it to others. How do you get there? How do you reach the point where you celebrate someone else's success because it doesn't come naturally? Moreover, it's not immediately imparted to you when you accept what Christ has done for you on the cross for you. Therefore, the only way to do this is the renewing of your mind. When you get saved, you're only thinking of yourself. You have to come before God as an individual, lay your life down and say, I can't do this. I need your help. Immediately, God meets you there and takes you from that point on a journey of learning and understanding. Having a shift from the physical perspective to a spiritual perspective takes time and practice. Muscle memory is no joke. If you do something over and over again, it becomes rote. Accordingly, athletes and musicians practice long hours to achieve excellent muscle memory. But you know and I know it's not just physical. Have you ever found yourself on autopilot in your car and you end up going home or to the grocery store instead of going where you intended to go? That's muscle memory. How you train your body to do a specific task becomes ingrained in you. Subsequently, your body will take you to that ingrained pattern, either physically or mentally. When you come to Christ, you're at a point of surrender. You want his help. Nevertheless, your body and your mind have well-formed muscle memories, coping skills, and interpersonal skills that have to be unlearned and replaced with a spiritual perspective skills. You can learn new interpersonal skills and gain spiritual muscle memory by renewing your mind through his word. The first and primary place to go to change how you view the world and to gain spiritual perspective is the word, the word of God. Memorizing scripture completing Bible studies, and connecting with a spiritual tribe, also known as a church or a small group, are tools to assist you as you develop your relationship with God 
and develop this spiritual perspective, this biblical worldview. The liberation from these temptations are not automatically experienced because our muscle memory reminds us and tries to pull us back into them. There's a lot more to it than I can get into in this podcast, but fundamentally, you renew your mind by studying God's word. But there's an interaction that can take place between you and God as you read the Bible. And, but the strength of your relationship with God impacts how healthy your relationship with other people can be. And the health of your interpersonal relationship is intrinsically connected to how much you have renewed your mind with God's word and how much you have allowed God to peel off some of the layers of your coping skills that you've developed before you became a Christian. And even after you became a Christian, God loved you so much that he offers you this authentic choice to follow him or not. And God's love is liberating. In Dennis Prager, Dennis Prager is a um, radio show host. He has a podcast and he does uh, lots of little videos that are more often than not banned from YouTube. So you have to kind of go to Dennis Prager's website to see them. But he recently published a book called The Rational Passover Haggadah, which is the script for hosting a Passover meal. In this, he states, freedom is a value, not an innate human desire. Most people prefer to be taken care of than to be free. The Passover includes these four questions that children are to ask, and theoretically, the parents are supposed to answer. He included answers, his answers or reasonable answers to these questions. I guess I should say the first question is basically, why do we have this unleavened bread? Why do we have this cracker instead of a nice fluffy loaf of bread? And his answer to the question is, it's better to eat a poor man's bread and be free than to eat a soft man's bread and live in slavery. Because the reason the bread was flat was because they had to hurry to leave when Pharaoh finally said, just leave tomorrow morning. Well, okay, we don't have time to make fluffy bread, let it rise and do all those things. We have to pack up the house and get out, but we're going to need to take food. The bread is already ready. It just hasn't risen. Throw it in, cook it up real quick. It's nice and flat, but it's still healthy, right? The thing is, God cannot command you to freely accept his offer of salvation. God wants us to freely come to him, to have an authentic choice to come to him and say, help me with this. Similarly, you cannot expect the renewing of your mind from this dependency on your flesh and your senses to easily shift, to do this paradigm shift to a spiritual perspective. It's not going to be an instant transfer. Likewise, not everyone you share your liberty with is going to accept it, regardless, right? 
It doesn't matter how people treat us. When you act in love, liberty is the consequence because love is a verb. And when you give love to others, liberty is the consequence because love is a noun. There's a profound transfer when you are acknowledged and treated as someone God loves that changes and liberates your soul. When you live brightly in love, you liberate God's other children. If you love someone, set them free, liberate them. Do not confine them or oppress them. Liberate others by being God's love to and for them so that they can return to him. So how do you let your light shine? You speak life and liberty to the captives. Yes, there are people trapped in physical bondage, such as sex slaves and subjugated cultures. Nevertheless, that's not the only slavery we talk about. It's not even the more important slavery to be liberated from. The spiritual bondage of sin, making everyone your competitor and in comparison, has a greater hold on many, many more people, dare I say, the consequences are much higher. The consequences are eternal. It's a matter of life and death and not just of the body, but of the soul. The biggest thing that could set you apart as a bright light in a dark and crazy world, focus on competition and comparison and judgment of each other is to be liberated from all of that. To be honest and celebrate with a friend when he gets a new car and not even consider how far in debt he is, you know, because that's how we justify things. Oh, yeah, he's probably in debt to his eyeballs. Celebrating with God's other children when they are blessed, regardless of where you are comparatively. It is liberating and elevating to your soul because liberty is a spiritual construct. And it's so different from everything they see in the world. There are CEOs and custodians who are struggling under the burden of oppression and judgment whispered into their ears every day. They see with their eyes and their body craves approval and more. By offering the liberty Christ offers you, you can set them free. You can set the world free by living brightly. What begins with L? Liberty. Believing in Christ, you are liberated from the desires of the flesh. But learning to walk in those freedoms takes practice. Shifting from being controlled by the physical to exercising the freedom to live for God allows you to live bright while sharing liberty with others. When you live free, when you live as the liberated person that you are, others will see and others will want what you have, which is what living brightly is all about. Thanks for joining me.